This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Amy, Julian, Sam VR, and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb F., who asks, Why would Jesus' own brothers say he's insane? With this question, Caleb is connected to my recent sermon on the end of Matthew 12, where Jesus is approached by his mother and brothers and tells the disciples that whoever does the will of his Father in heaven is his brother and sister and mother. Mark's gospel tells the same story in Mark chapter 3, but it introduces the story with an explanation that his family went out to seize him, saying that he was out of his mind. Now, the critics of Jesus were already accusing him of things like this. They said he had an unclean spirit. They said that he was crazy. Anything they could think of to discredit Jesus and his teaching. My guess is that surrounded by people saying things like this, Jesus' brothers did what a lot of us do. They caved to the pressure to go along with the majority. They were afraid of what the world thought, and so instead of following Jesus, they did what they thought the world would want them to do. It's a powerful lesson to all of us. We live in a world that rejects Jesus, that says that you'd have to be crazy to believe what he taught or to follow him. Let's not make the mistake of Jesus' brothers. Instead, let's do the will of the Father and follow him. And now Amy asks, Do the other unclean spirits make the person more evil? Now, this is another good sermon question. Remember the story that Jesus told right before his brothers arrived in Matthew chapter 12 about the house where the unclean spirit is cast out only to return with seven other spirits more evil than itself? That's what Amy is asking about. Now, Amy, you're right that the house in that parable represents a person, Jesus is saying that a person with evil inside them, if the evil is cleansed, can only stay free of it by having the Spirit of God living in them. If they don't have the Spirit, then the evil will return and be much, much worse. So, yes, Jesus says that the state of the person will be much worse than it was before, which means that they will be enslaved to evil even more than they were to begin with. Essentially, he's saying, if you think it's bad to have one evil spirit living in your house, imagine how bad it would be to have that one plus seven more who are even more terrible. Now, the point is that no effort we make to reform ourselves or to cleanse ourselves is ever enough. Unless we have the Spirit of God in us, we will never be free. And now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Julian. Let's give Julian a round of applause. Here's Julian's question. Does predestination mean we have no choice in what we do? Do we not have free will? Julian, whenever people talk about free will and predestination, they'll often begin by saying that this is a 2,000-year-old debate and that ultimately nothing we say will resolve it. It's a mystery that we just have to live with. 
Now, as you know, I'm all in favor of living with mysteries that the Bible doesn't explain. But in this case, the Bible says more than people think. The reason there's such a debate is that usually we don't look too deeply at what Scripture says. Instead, we rush from a handful of proof texts to having an argument about philosophy. So what I want to do is approach the question of predestination from a biblical standpoint. If the Bible teaches something, then we ought to believe it, whether it fits into our philosophical system or not. Now, the Westminster Confession gives us a great outline of what the Bible teaches concerning God's predestination and human choices. You'll find it in chapter 3, section 1. Now, first it says that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Note that they aren't just talking here about salvation. They mean everything. God ordains everything that happens. So, whatever thing you're curious about, just ask, does this thing happen? Yes, it does? Well, then God ordains it. There is no stronger statement of God's sovereignty than that. Now, interestingly, this statement in chapter 3 flows directly from the doctrine of God found in chapter 2. Describing God, the confession summarizes this way, He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever he pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain." Did you hear that? Not only does God have dominion over everything, but he also knows everything. And his knowing does not depend on us. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't discover things over time. And no fact in the mind of God is contingent. In other words, his knowing doesn't depend on anything outside of his mind. In fact, we might say it's the other way around. The things that are in the world depend on the mind of God, not vice versa. Now, as you can see, the Bible's teaching about God's power and knowledge pretty much demands that we acknowledge him as the one who ordains whatever happens. If we don't, we're taking away from his perfect being, power, and knowledge. Which means if we stop there, we might say something like, God chooses, we don't. But the confession doesn't stop there, because the Bible doesn't. Instead, it gives us three qualifiers or guardrails. Basically, as you try to figure out exactly what it means that God ordains everything that happens, the Bible tells you three things it definitely doesn't mean. Here they are. It doesn't mean that God is the author of sin. According to 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. However we explain the mystery of evil, we cannot blame God for it, even though he is all-powerful and all-knowing. Second, God's ordaining of all things doesn't mean that he offers violence to the will of his creatures. So, if you're thinking that God makes things happen by overruling human will and desire, as if I wanted to do one thing, but God forced me to do something else, then that too is a faulty understanding. Now, sometimes you'll hear people argue that God cannot be sovereign because it would mean doing violence to the human will. They say things like, God can't violate someone's free will. That would be wrong. But the Westminster Confession specifically denies that God violates the will. 
So this is one of those arguments that's based on ignorance. It's what apologists call a straw man argument because it refutes an argument that no one is actually making. Now, to help clarify this, the confession mentions a third guardrail. It says that God, ordaining everything, does not take away what it calls the liberty or contingency of second causes, but instead establishes it. Essentially, the point is this. God's ordaining is the ultimate cause of whatever happens, but not the only cause. These secondary causes aren't overruled or invalidated by God's power. In fact, the opposite is the case. Our ability to act or choose actually comes from God's ordaining power. In other words, circling back to your original question, Julian, predestination doesn't mean we have no choice, and it doesn't mean we have no free will. In fact, in the Confession, you'll find a whole chapter on free will. It's chapter 9. And there you'll find that the problem for the human will isn't predestination. It's sin. We're free to do what we desire, but our desires are not free from sin. Instead, we are slaves to sin, as the Apostle Paul says. And that's what the Bible teaches about the human will. So, instead of philosophizing about what constitutes freedom and whether freedom and God's sovereignty are compatible, if we take a biblical approach, we see that God is sovereign, that human beings are responsible for our choices, but we're not free from the corruption of sin until Jesus makes us free. If you want to study this more, start with the chapters I've mentioned in the Confession, chapter 2 and 3 and chapter 9. These will give you a biblical framework for thinking through this fascinating and admittedly complicated question. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Sam VR asks, did you ever play basketball? Sam, this is going to surprise you, but yes, I played basketball. When I was a kid, my dad was a basketball referee. He used to take me to his games, and I would watch from the bleachers. I even got to wear one of his old referee shirts with the black and white stripes and one of those whistles you dangle from your neck. My brother and I used to practice shooting hoops in front of the garage, and eventually, when I was in high school, I played on the basketball team. That may surprise you, and it should, but the thing you have to realize is that there weren't many students at my school, so if you were a warm body, you pretty much had to play on every team. So my high school letter jacket had letters for basketball, football, track, volleyball, and even ping pong, which was one of the things I was actually good at, unlike all the others. Was I an incredible athlete? Hardly. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now Benton wants to know, have you ever played the board game Risk? Benton, I know we already talked about this at the Super Bowl party, but yes, I love Risk so much that I figured I should mention it again. I love that game and I still do. I like strategy games in general, and since I also love military history, a game like Risk is right down my alley. Now, I probably shouldn't admit this, but as a kid inspired by the Risk game board, I put a map of the world up in this secret room I used to have under the stairs in our house. It was my command center where I made plans for all of my future conquests. I always imagined that one day I would raise an army and start taking over the world. Now, at this point, it's probably not going to happen, but it's still fun to play games that pretend like it might.
That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.